1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. America's inflation numbers were predictably high yesterday. The calculation compares with a year ago when prices and economies were plunging. But how to set a sensible inflation target given all the growth and the uncertainty that's around? And flying cars are coming soon. I know, I know, they've been just around the corner for decades. But investment and prototypes are multiplying, not for passenger cars, but for taxis. Talk about getting a lift. First up, though. For weeks now, Russia has been amassing tanks, missiles and troops near its border with Ukraine. Russia's defense minister characterized the moves yesterday as part of a sudden check of combat readiness and said that the troops had proven their ability. But that combat readiness has caused concern in Ukraine and among its allies. Yesterday, the secretary-general of NATO, Jens Stoltenberg, met with the Ukrainian foreign minister.
2: Russia's uh, considerable military buildup is unjustified, unexplained, and deeply concerning.
1: And President Joe Biden phoned his Russian counterpart, Vladimir Putin. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said he'd called for a summit on a range of issues, including the escalation with Ukraine.
0: The president voiced our concerns over the sudden Russian military buildup uh, and increasing aggression on the border of Ukraine and called on Russia to de-escalate tensions.
1: Ukraine, which is not a member of NATO, despite long seeking to be, called for an increased Western presence.
0: We need measures which will deter Russia and which will contain its uh, aggressive intentions.
1: Direct confrontation so far seems unlikely, but the amassing Russian military is vastly different from the forces that invaded Ukraine in 2014, more advanced and more battle-trained.
3: This is a really significant military buildup. NATO says it's probably the biggest Russian force that has massed on the border since 2014, the year that Russia invaded eastern Ukraine and annexed Crimea.
1: Shashank Joshi is our defense editor.
3: The Russian defense minister said that Russia has put into place two armies, which is a very large military unit and three airborne units over the past three weeks. And he has described that as a response to NATO military activities that threaten Russia. But this is a really sizable force, probably something like 40,000 troops on the eastern border with Ukraine, 40,000 inside Crimea, according to the Ukrainian presidency. And if that was turned on Ukraine, it would be a very potent
1: offensive force. And is that the plan, do you think?
3: No one is entirely sure of what Russia intends. Certainly NATO, the US Army in Europe are on very high alert. They're very concerned about Russian intentions. These kind of big collection of forces can often be preludes to invasion. In this case, a lot of analysts think that an actual invasion is still unlikely. For one thing, the ground in eastern Ukraine is too wet for a full-scale invasion, among other factors involved. And many people think that the Russian intention here is more about muscle flexing. You have a lot going on here, of course. You have Alexei Navalny, a key opposition politician in Russia who has been detained and is is very unwell. You have a new American president and a Russian government that is eager to test him. And Russia has been investing a lot of resources into shoring up its armed forces. If you look at the period between 2005 and 2018, Russian annual military spending has probably doubled approximately, and it now stands at somewhere in the region of around $180 billion in real
1: terms. So that's a lot of cash. And what does all that money buy?
3: Well, it's bought, unsurprisingly, lots of firepower. They've bought hundreds of new planes, helicopters, thousands of new drones. They've modernized lots of their kit as well. And they've invested in some very specific areas. I think the most interesting one is
1: long-range precision missiles
3: that effectively can strike any point in Europe from well, well west of the Rhine.
1: And so all of this transformation then just comes down to, to stockpiling some very visible kit.
3: Well, hardware and and weapons are part of it, but it isn't just that. It's the way they've organized their forces. It's a much more digital force. There's also big advances in what military types call readiness. That is how quickly you can move your forces. Russian forces used to be big, heavy, sprawling things, that you know, moved in quite ponderous ways. Now, the Russians could probably get a 100,000 or so troops with heavy armor to a European hotspot in 30 days or so. NATO would struggle to get half of that in lighter forces in the same time. So we're looking at a much more fleet-footed and agile force, as well as one that has a lot more firepower.
1: But one that has the experience and the training to put all of that firepower and, and new techniques to use.
3: Yes, Western armed forces have been fighting for 20 years in Iraq and Afghanistan, but Russia has been fighting in even more relevant conflicts in Ukraine and Syria, and they have built up really significant skills in those places. So if you look at Ukraine, Russia has been practicing things like armored warfare, artillery duels, how to use cyber attacks to feed targeting information to your guns. In Syria, over 60,000 Russian soldiers have served. Practically any senior Russian general now has experience on the Syrian battlefield. They've practiced things like precision strikes, you know, sending missiles across from the Caspian Sea to Syria. They've practiced batting away drone swarms, attacking their bases, use of unmanned vehicles. So this is an army that isn't just a kind of army that's nice on paper. It's actually built up a great deal of combat experience. It's been blooded.
1: I mean, the picture you paint here uh, is is of an almost unstoppable kind of force now.
3: Well, it's not necessarily unstoppable. There are still weaknesses. They don't have a very good record in shipbuilding, for example. There are delays to new tanks. Their defense industry has a big shortage of personnel, a shortage of tools. Pay isn't that great still. You know, although conscripts are not having to forage for food like they were in the 1990s is still an issue of morale and and conscripts make up over half of all ground forces, which means in a war, their utility might be fairly limited. So it isn't a perfect force, but it is one that's still come a long, long way in the past 10 years.
1: And that coming a long, long way must strike some fear in the hearts of of would-be rivals of, of neighboring countries?
3: I think that's right. You know, since Russia's invasion of Ukraine in 2014, NATO has done a great deal to spend a lot more and to think a lot more about how it defends itself. It's put battle groups in Estonia and other Baltic countries, for instance. But, you know, two thirds of NATO countries are still not spending 2% of GDP on defense, which is the alliance's target. Their spending is still divided up amongst 30 countries. And a recent study by the International Institute for Strategic Studies, which is a think tank in London, said in a war with NATO, Russia would have conventional superiority for a limited period. In other words, if a war was a short one, Russia could probably prevail. In a longer one, NATO could probably mobilize its superior economic resources. But precisely to try and put a ceiling on, that to try and cap any conflict. Uh, Russia has also been investing quite a lot in nuclear weapons and lots of different types of nuclear weapons launched in in all kinds of crazy ways, including ones that can circle the earth indefinitely, radioactive torpedoes. And all of that is, is intended to say to NATO, if you escalate a conflict, if a conflict stretches on, don't think that this can't turn nuclear if necessary.
1: And what does all this mean for the situation in Ukraine right now, Ukraine not being a NATO country? Where does that leave President Zelensky?
3: For President Zelensky, there's a real dilemma. As you say, Jason, he isn't a member of NATO. He doesn't enjoy the formal protections of the alliance. So he is trying to mobilize as much support as he can from the United States, from his European allies. He's getting lots of warm words, but of course, warm words don't repel Russian forces. And I think the dilemma he faces is that if he sends troops east, if he escalates the military situation in the Donbass, which is the part of eastern Ukraine that is being fought over by Russian-backed rebels and the Ukrainian army, he may inadvertently give Vladimir Putin a pretext on which to invade eastern Ukraine. It may give Putin an opportunity to say we're going to come in and protect ethnic Russians and he doesn't want to do that. So I think he's walking a very, very fine line watching these Russian forces mass on his border in growing numbers, making sure he can defend his country but at the same time not doing anything that would provoke a war in which he would probably come off the worse. This is a Russian force that is much more potent, much more ready, much more capable than it was back in 2014 when Ukraine was first invaded.
1: Shashong, thank you very much for joining us.
3: Thank you, Jason.
1: There's plenty more analysis that cuts through the uncertainties of a recuperating world in The Economist get a great introductory deal on a subscription at economist.com/intelligenceoffer. The link is in the show notes.
0: What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovation's paradise, where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist.
1: Even as the pandemic situation seems to be brightening in the rich world, uncertainty abounds about how to keep both people and economies healthy. America's vaccination program had been building up steam, but yesterday, its drugs regulator announced a suspension of Johnson & Johnson's jab, owing to concerns about rare blood clots. President Joe Biden tried to reassure the American public that there are plenty of vaccines to go around. I made sure we have 600 million doses of the MR, not of either Johnson & Johnson and or AstraZeneca. So there's enough vaccine that is basically 100% unquestionable for every single solitary American. A year into the pandemic, some data are emerging that indicate the economic effects of all this uncertainty and of vaccine successes so far. Yesterday's consumer price index for March, the cost of a representative sample of goods, rose by 2.6%. Taking out the quicker moving contributions from food and energy, prices went up by 1.6%. That might not sound like a lot, but it's the biggest one-month increase in the index since a date that might ring a bell, November 2009. Economists
4: always pay close attention to inflation and rising prices, but March's figures are being particularly closely watched.
1: Henry Kerr is our economics editor.
4: That's for a few reasons. One is that March is exactly one year on from when the pandemic first started, which was dragging down prices. And so that affects the data. And the second thing is to do with politics and economics and the interaction between what's going on in Congress with stimulus and infrastructure spending and the American economy.
1: Okay, well, let's take those two factors in turn. What does it being a year on from when the pandemic really started to bite have to do with this year's numbers being particularly interesting?
4: When you calculate inflation, you're looking at prices today and comparing them to prices a year ago. And what happened at the start of the pandemic was that prices fell. The economy completely fell off a cliff and prices went with it. So as that becomes the comparison you're making to a year ago, not February 2020, but March 2020, realised inflation is going to shoot up and that's what's happened there. So the Consumer Price Index, which is one measure of American inflation, was at 2.6% in March, which is a big step up from where it was before quite sudden and it's also sort of a grabbing number because it's high by recent standards we've been in a low inflation world and it's also quite clearly higher than the fed's 2% target the fed doesn't look at the cpi it looks at, some, at something else but 2.6 is obviously well clear of that
1: but as you say if this is sort of a mathematical quirk of measuring a, a change on something that had clearly gone down why are we paying such close attention to it
4: There's a few things to say here. One is that it's not just the mathematical quirk. It's happening at a time when the economy is reopening rapidly, jobs are coming back rapidly, and everyone's talking about very high economic growth. So the question is whether after inflation, because of the mathematical quirk, goes up a bit, whether it will come back down or whether it won't, whether it will just be temporary. And that's a sort of important debate. The other thing to note is that an important factor when you consider where inflation is going is where people expect it to go, because inflation expectations are self-fulfilling. And the other thing is that we're operating in a world now where the Fed has changed its mandate subtly. I mentioned the 2% inflation target. Well, last August, it said Actually, what we're going to do now is try to shoot for over 2% in order to make up for periods where it will be lower than 2%, like we've had during the pandemic. But there's a bit of a question mark there about exactly how far over 2% the Fed wants to go for exactly how long. And so there's all sorts of uncertainty in the air about inflation, which is feeding into a lot of attention for the inflation figures. And if you like, the mathematical quirk is sort of step one on this journey towards this possibly maybe high inflation world or world in which the Fed has to think a bit harder about what it's doing.
1: So in a sense, the numbers that have just come out are more or less not only what the Fed might have expected, but once, I guess.
4: Yes, to a degree, although no one's quite sure what the average inflation targeting means for what comes over the next few years. Does it mean the Fed's looking for 2.3, 2.5 or higher? At the moment, the Fed's putting a lot of effort into emphasising that inflation is going to come back down once the mathematical quirk fades away. But what I would say about that is that it's not 100% clear. That the economic models are going to be right. They've been quite wrong already during the pandemic on what would happen to unemployment. They were far too pessimistic. And so it's clear that there's a high amount of uncertainty around inflation at the moment. And the the real question is whether inflation will go back down after the base effects are out. The Fed says yes, but not everyone agrees with that.
1: And you said the other reason that this is drawing such attention is something more to do with politics than economics.
4: Yes, well, that is because some critics of the big stimulus that has just been passed in America by President Joe Biden and the Democrats in Congress said it would overheat the economy in the second half of this year and beyond. And so we're entering a period before long where we're going to see whether that's true. And if that is true, it will come through in the inflation numbers. Now, no one's saying that the base effects, the comparison effects are a sign of overheating, but people want to see whether or not the Biden stimulus is too much. And obviously, it also affects how you view the infrastructure proposals that the administration is now putting forward. So that's the other relevant factor here. Inflation is increasingly seen as the ultimate constraint on what economic policymakers can do. And so the importance of the figures has gone up.
1: So, if there's some uncertainty on the sort of year to year effect, the mathematical quirk, and uh, the effects of, of all of the stimulus going into uh, America's economy, what's the prescription? How do you avoid getting too much inflation when there is all this uncertainty around?
4: I think what's happening at the moment is that you have a high uncertainty environment. You can't escape that. There's lots going on in the economy that we haven't done before. Coming out of lockdowns and social distancing restrictions, we're not really familiar with that. Unprecedented levels of fiscal stimulus and a new way of looking at how monetary policy works. So what you should try and do if you're the Fed, in my view, would be to minimise the amount of uncertainty that's being introduced. And I think that the Fed hasn't been entirely clear about what average inflation targeting means. It's going to have to resolve that at some point because the closer it gets to raising interest rates and tightening monetary policy, it's going to have to confront exactly what it's looking for. And I think there are divisions within the Fed that have meant it's being fairly imprecise about its new regime. And there's a big division between what the Fed thinks is going to happen and what financial markets think is going to happen. So I think the most important thing is to tidy that up. But I don't think the wait and see approach is wrong. The problem in in the 2010s in the last economic cycle was that interest rates probably went up too soon as a result of inflation fears that turned out to be misplaced. You don't want to repeat that mistake, but certainly it's right to pay close attention to these figures as the levels of uncertainty are very high.
1: Henry, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. From the Jetsons, to Back to the Future 2, to Blade Runner, the flying car has long been presented as an inevitable outcome in a high-tech society.
2: Where we're going, we don't need roads.
1: The thing is, many of those stories were set in a future that's now in our past. You might reasonably ask, come on, where's my flying car? It seems that in not too long, you might be scanning the skies asking a different question. Where's my taxi?
2: The history of flying cars is almost as long as the history of aviation itself. The Curtis autoplane of 1917 is sort of an awkward-looking contraption with detachable wings that could turn into a car. In fact, it barely left the ground, but the idea was already there.
1: Simon Wright is The Economist's industry editor.
2: Aviation has come a long way in the last hundred years, and if the money pouring into the sector is anything to go by, flying
1: taxis will soon be taking off. What do you mean by money pouring into the sector? Well,
2: over the last year, and particularly in the last few months, investors have been putting money behind flying car companies. Lilium, a German company that's going to be making flying taxis, is going public via a reverse merger that values it at about 3.3 billion.
4: We promised the world a five-seater jet. Today, we are delivering on that promise. It takes off and lands vertically, it's fully electric. This is the Lilium jet.
2: Archer and Joby, two American companies, have also announced they're going public. And in fact, I think there's around 300 firms are working on these short-range battery-powered craft at the moment. And the reason they're doing so is that Morgan Stanley, for example, reckons that the market for aerial taxi journeys could be worth $674 billion by 2040.
1: And so this is pretty much what I would imagine here in terms of a flying taxi, something not entirely unlike a helicopter.
2: Yeah, you're exactly right. There was sort of a cross between a helicopter and a taxi, but with the worst things about those two things removed. They're short-range, battery-powered craft. They're specifically designed to be taxis, but they can fly four or five times faster than a cab and above all the congestion. They can land on small patches of concrete. You don't need really much infrastructure. But unlike noisy helicopters,
1: they don't face the
2: restrictions that they do for flying over cities.
1: So the speed of the journey is one factor here, but so is the cost when it comes to taxis. How much is it going to cost me to get around in one of these things?
2: Joby, so the initial cost of flying in its five-seater will be about $4 per person per mile. That could soon fall by 25% as economies of scale kick in. So a trip from Manhattan to JFK Airport could then cost around $30 to $40 per passenger. In a taxi, you know, you can cram as many people in as you possibly can and split the cost, whereas this would be, each person would have to pay that. But, you know, that sounds like it's not much more than a taxi and probably a lot more fun.
1: Well, exactly. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sold on the idea. How soon do you think we'll be able to hail one of these things?
2: Both Joby and
1: Archer think they will
2: have a crafting commercial operation by around 2024. Archer promises a flying taxi network in both Los Angeles and Miami by that date. It could even be sooner in China and in Europe. Ehang, a Chinese firm, has already got certification from Chinese regulators. The issue is more one of regulation and certification. It seems like the tech is pretty much developed to the point where it's ready for deployment.
1: Now, alongside the discussion about driverless cars is the notion of entirely driverless taxis. Will we see the same thing in the air, do you think?
2: Absolutely. In fact, it might even be a sort of a simpler task for flying robo taxis because all they've really got to do is avoid knocking into each other rather than the sort of myriad problems that developers of robo taxis are having on the ground where there are many, many more hazards. That could happen as early as 2028. As one industry insider said to me, we want to get people used to the idea of flying taxis before we really scare people by taking the pilot away.
1: Simon, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review, and we'll see you back here tomorrow.